Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, Britain has a new national radio station. We tune in to Times Radio. Plus, hundreds more media jobs are lost, millions more dollars are poured into the podcast market, and Facebook faces a boycott from a third of big brands. And in our final media quiz of the season, we celebrate the productions that have been made in Dagenham. It's all to come in today's media podcast. And joining us this episode, making her media podcast debut, it is magazine journalist and blogger Elizabeth Carr-Ellis. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Ollie. Nice to be here. Nice to have you here. I keep seeing you popping up on the news, campaigning for menopause awareness. What is it like being on the other side of an interview? Because you've done a lot of interviews in your time. Yeah, it's horrible. I hate it. Um, (laughs) I mean, I love it because I'm getting the message across, which is great. But these journalists ask some damn pesky questions at time and make me have to think, which, you know, I'm not used to that. That's actually quite refreshing, though, that they're not just telling you what soundbite to say so that it fits in the 10-second slot they have. When I did Channel 5 News, we literally got shoved into a seat, told we were live, sat there for five minutes and then got told to get out. So, yeah, there's no pre-warning, there's no messages, nothing. It's just purely on the hoof. So, yeah, I'm surprised I sound so professional and good. I think I'm born to be on that side of the camera, to be honest. The joys of rigorous public service broadcasting news provision. We'll be talking about that later on the show. Uh, Also with us, Creative Director of Folder Media, Matt Deegan is back. Hello, Matt. Hi, Ollie. Uh, The British Podcast Awards are happening and they're happening this weekend, and they're happening remotely. Tell us more. Yes, so uh, Saturday night, 7.30pm, presented by Clara Ampho and Rihanna Dillon. Uh, So we have been rehearsing that uh, for the last couple of days. Um, We're going all in on the live stream. It's going to be relatively adventurous. uh, What does that mean? We're presenting it live, and we're going to go to winner's doorsteps to give them the trophies wow i'm gonna Have try you got danny and... baker or shane richie <laughs> um mark lamar no um and um uh yes so we have been getting ready for that what could possibly go wrong with trying to feed live video into a, a live stream but it will give it that frisson of excitement uh, britishpodcastawards.com if you want to see it all fall apart live at, at half past seven on saturday yeah. night if you want to see a load of people whose uh, background is podcasting doing a live video stream, <laughs> that will be intriguing. Uh, well, well done anyway for getting it going. And uh, last but not least, the ever shy and retiring editor of Newsweek International, Alex Hudson, is back. Hello, Alex. 
Hello. I, I think that's a compliment, isn't it? You've been writing a lot about loot boxes for Newsweek. Uh, what's uh, the latest on those? I Gambling have. for kids, basically. That is what the government is alleging. So the House of Lords have just released a report about how it is essentially gambling for kids. And no one can come up with a good reason why no one's regulating it. So the fact that the, you know, do you remember the grabbing machines at the arcades that you use? Or that definitely all parents have ever used ever and all kids are like (laughs) excited about. And then you go, they're regulated by the gambling commission in a way that loot boxes, which you spend sort of five pounds a time, and there's there's examples of people spending six hundred pounds on it in a in a in a month. They're not regulated. So give us an example of a particularly heinous one where you're like, how can this possibly have escaped the, the um, box? There's, there's the biggest ones are in Fortnite or in and in FIFA. The, the uh, FIFA is ch- uh, the football game has changed its mechanic, so it's called chance mechanics. So they're not mm. called loot boxes anymore, but you can easily spend twenty, thirty, forty pounds in there, and your chances of getting a good player or a great kit are less than 1%. It's fascinating because, I mean, obviously you work in kids' media, Matt. I'm really interested when a sort of uh, mainstream media brand like, I don't know, uh, Thomas & Friends, for example, you'll then go on to the game version that you get in the App Store. I've done this with my four-year-old. And you'll realise that what appears to be a free game with a few optional paid extras is in fact just a giant advert. And within five minutes, if you're a very excitable four-year-old, you spent 20 quid. Yeah, I think there's the the interesting complexities are uh, licensed brands, so people who are licensing things, to then they've got the game rights to make stuff, and are they entirely aligned with that brand's values, and does the brand understand the modern options that sit around it, uh, and also I think you know, FIFA is a good example, games that uh, perhaps um, don't acknowledge the fact that lots of children play them. Uh, and say, oh no, we're we've got to you've got to be over thirteen to play, or you've got to be you know whatever the rules might be, um, knowing full well that actually uh, it's got a huge appeal for for younger audiences. Mm. Well, no loot boxes here. I've got a full running order, and it's all free to listen to. So let's get going. Uh, it is not a good week to work in journalism. Uh, Or should I say it is, if you still have a job, because as well as publishers reach letting go of 500 staff, uh, we've learnt that 450 of the BBC's regional journalists also face redundancy. Uh, Elizabeth, you're a magazine journalist. Print has been pretty precarious for the last 20 years. So does this feel different to you? It does, yeah. I mean, I I started off in the regions, so learning that regional press is being hit is really, really worrying. I mean, Regional press is a lot of way that working class kids like me could get into journalism. So if lots of jobs are going, which is where they seem to be going from there, then where's that footstep going? It's already difficult enough because every job now asks for you to be in London, really. I go around to my old newspaper, the Newcastle Chronicle. I go to the offices and they're not there anymore. They're in a tiny little office now compared to where they used to be. Same as when I was at the Scotsman, they're now in a tiny little office. So the hit to regionals is has been huge over the last few years. This has been growing and growing. And this time it does feel as if this is the end of it. It's going down. So really you think whatever happens now is just... It's the middle of the end, if you like. I think so, yeah. I think we're very much towards the middle of the end of the end sort of thing because they have just been decimated so much. We've had so many centralised hubs and they're talking now about centralising more, which means 
that those regional news stories, you know, where you would literally get somebody coming into the front office to complain if you got something wrong is not there anymore. And I think that will have a huge impact on the industry because you're not going to have that accountability that's right on your doorstep anymore. If you're subbing something, for example, and it's in Newcastle and you're working from a centralised hub in Yorkshire, which I've heard of happening, you're not going to know the name places properly. You're not going to know the region properly. And you're not going to be accountable to your readers as much. It's very difficult to imagine what else they could have done, though, Alex. I mean, if you look at Reach, for example, it's formerly Trinity Mirror, this company, of course. Uh, revenue for the second quarter of this year is down 27.5% year on year. Print down nearly 30%. I mean, if you had to make a case for a more streamlined newsroom, if you were one of the editors there now, what would you be saying to your staff? Reach is a really interesting one. So the meetings about those redundancies and those sackings happened, started happening today. Uh, so just before we began this podcast recording, I was speaking to some people very familiar with the matter about what's going on with the Daily Star. And th- there are papers now with nine reporters on them. And these are national newspapers with nine reporters. And some of those reporters are filing 20 stories a shift. And that's baffling and confusing. And I, and I think there's a, there's a problem with the model about how you need an, an infinite number of audience members to pay the advertising dollars so that you can make ends meet. But if you're going to run a national newspaper with nine reporters left on it, it's a national newspaper. It's, it's still got a significant circulation. It's just further evidence, make people pay for journalism. How can we move people to keep an appointment with a, with a, with a publisher? How can we get people to pay for the stories? Like if, if 10,000 people in Newcastle would pay for that journalism every month, that survives and that prospers. If it, if it That's what you can say at an executive level. It's very hard to tell journalists, those nine journalists, that those cuts are necessary and they're going to have to work even harder, isn't it? That's my point. It's very difficult to think how to even phrase that. <laughs> I I don't even pretend to know how you can have those conversations because advertising has fallen through the floor because of COVID-19. But if all of the publishers were in a very healthy position when this began, the cuts wouldn't be as severe as they have been. And you sort of, you see the sort of the Reach Group editor-in-chief, Lloyd Embley, who rumour has it, his announcement was taken even worse than perhaps it might have been uh, in those Zoom meetings that started today. I don't think it according to those people I've spoken to who were in those meetings, it was not handled the best it could be. And there is no easy way to do this. There is no good, there is no good thing coming out of the COVID-19 crisis, except, except for, you know, incredible journalism around this thing itself. But it's, it's how you handle it. And it's how you build confidence with young journalists. And there are so many young journalists now who are without, if you look at the scheme, the uh, trainee schemes at the Beeb and at the Sun that have stopped because of this, there are even fewer ways into journalism than there were three months ago. And that's one of the problems, Matt, isn't it, with what's happening in the BBC regions as well? I mean, in the last edition of the show, uh, the panel were discussing the possibility that Inside Out would be scrapped. It has been now. And these cuts are affecting local radio as well, which is one of the stepping stones, isn't it, for new talent to come through? Not to mention diverse talent, which we've also talked about a lot. How are you supposed to get your foot on the ladder? Sure. I mean, Inside Out, in effect, being reinvented as a, a programme with less editions, uh, maybe less episodes throughout the year. Um, on the local radio side, um, it would, I was having a look at it and it basically works out four to five people a site in, in BBC local radio. Um, and... The, the talk about sort of any double headers going and extending shows suggests that it's probably half of those people are actually radio presenters um, who will probably lose their jobs. Um, I think there's been some surprise that um, the management, the kind of more senior management level 
uh, the managing editors haven't been um, reduced. Uh, I think my hunch would be actually in the other sort of round of, of uh, voluntary redundancies that are happening with the BBC that probably a number of those will go at that point. Um, but it still means BBC Local Radio is relatively well supported um, staff-wise. You know, of course, everybody uh, you know, d- doesn't like anything contracting, but I think definitely compared to its commercial competitors it is something that is um, relatively well supported. But this is something the audience really notice, isn't it? When the, their favourite presenter disappears. I mean, you're talking about on local stations now, three shows in daytime every day all hosted by one person. So, I mean, you know, the connection with the audience really is depleted by this. They will notice in a way that they wouldn't notice a management restructure. Uh, yes, and I think I, I, I think they know, the BBC knows they have to save a lot of money and, you know, a lot of nice things and things that, that are good across all aspects of the BBC are going to have to go. Um, yeah, but and- I mean, I mean, I've presented on local radio, and I, and I get paid because I'm cover presenting whatever the guy who does the usual gig gets paid, and that's ranged from at the most you're talking 250 quid for a show. It's typically like 120 pounds, and we're not talking about millions of quid here. We're talking about 120 quid to present a three-hour show. They're not saving much money by doing this, really. It is across 40 stations, though. So any of those numbers are times 40. Uh, so it, it does it does add up. But, you know, this is this is just the beginning of, you know, large elements of the BBC that are going to have to be removed um, and that we've talked about, you know, all, all along on the podcast. But, you know, knocking out 250 to 750 million pounds of a, a budget of a thing that's 4 billion, uh, that, that's going to make big cuts. You know, that's, that's, that's the big shows going, you know, elements of networks going, you know, uh, to be honest, I think you could argue that local radio got off relatively lightly um, in, in this round for, for the scale of it. They could have merged centers together, um, had uh, multiple stations coming from one place, sharing programming all those sorts of things which was potentially expected but that hasn't happened but what seems odd to me elizabeth is even once you've taken this decision okay we need to save money so we're going to you know reduce our schedule if you go onto the little mini websites now for all the bbc local radio stations they've been universalized across the board so the shows are just called the mid-morning show lates (laughs) it's got a basic fundamental misunderstanding of how listeners engage with the presenters that they love which I mean, I'm shocked that the BBC is doing. I'm sure there's a reason. I'm sure they'll revamp it in a few months or whatever. But it looks shoddy, I think. And and it it's as if, basically, the listeners over 70, because that's who we're talking about in a lot of cases, just don't matter to them. I think listeners over 70 have never mattered to them, even though they're a core demographic for the BBC. Um, but I think people are becoming used to shoddy, though. I was thinking this the other day, watching a news report where the Zoom kept failing and everybody just accepts that now so I think shoddy is almost de rigueur it's what people expect so if you don't have your name on the program then people are okay with that now as long as there's somebody there because we just accept second best with Covid I think. And Elizabeth we discovered this week as well we will move on to some happier news in a moment I (laughs) I promise uh, that the licence fee means testing will be starting in August because there was some hope of a reprieve for the over 75s perhaps but are you surprised they are very much proceeding with that? I am, yes, because, well, mainly because that's a huge vote winner for whichever government is in. Um, so the Tories won't be happy because they're going to be losing a lot of votes from the over 75s for doing it. 
The TV, my mum is 90. TV is her lifeline. And she's very fortunate that she can afford to pay it. But there's a lot of people who won't be able to afford to pay it and they'll just give up going for it. Or it will just add to cost to scrap the licence. Or I guess, Alex, they won't pay and they'll continue watching the telly and radio and no one's going to prosecute them and no one's going to bang up a 95-year-old so it'll basically be fine. It's difficult. Like how, like uh, As Matt was saying, some things have to be cut or the BBC has to work out a way to make more money. So either the BBC looks to more commercial things, it looks to, towards more branded content across BBC World, either it tries to make more money from the British audiences, either that whether that be BritBox or another subscription service, or it cuts back on whether it be BBC Three. If, if it wants to create the biggest stir for doing the least amount of damage, cut BBC Radio Three. See what happens. The entire establishment loses loses its head. Everyone is up in arms at the fact that the BBC says it can't support it anymore. But when you're looking at radio stations, cost per listener, that is the highest cost per listener across across any radio across the BBC radio stations. And it it hits a market that the BBC already has. And so I, I think if a 95-year-old isn't paying their TV license, they're not going to be banged up, you're right. But something has to give with the BBC if it's going to keep producing content that enough people want to justify the license fee. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you have a DAB radio, there's a new radio station, a national one, that you can get for free that's been launched in the last fortnight. Uh, that is Times Radio, of course, Matt. Uh, how's it sounding to you? I think it sounds pretty good. Um, there was a lot of discussion about it being, you know, a commercial radio for, which I don't think it was ever really the case. Listening to it, it's a bit like the sort of Five Live from kind of 15 years ago. Uh I think actually there's a quite a nice thing. News, you know, News UK, Talk Sport, Talk Sport Two, 
Talk Radio, Virgin Radio, and now Times Radio. You know, Times Radio and Talk Sport, you know, two options. You know, one of the biggest problems Five Live has is the news people hate the sport and the sport people hate the news. Um, so, you know, News UK now have uh, more uh, structured options for that. Uh, I think all of it's pretty solid. Uh, it definitely started very well. They clearly spent some money on it. Presenters are good. It's a bit middle class as is the brand, you know, that's, you know, not a big surprise there. Um, and I think Matt Chorley show, uh, Times political reporter previously, uh, is, is good, is, uh, some quite good feature ideas, doing things slightly differently. I think that's probably the most standout at the moment, but I think it's, it's all pretty good. The fact that you end up inevitably making comparisons with BBC services, though, I wonder if that was always going to be the problem, Elizabeth, with this idea, because, the Times as a brand, I mean, if I buy a print newspaper, it's the one I buy, but I couldn't really tell you what they stand for, apart from I kind of trust them, and they're slightly right of centre, and they've been around for ages. I mean, they're basically, <laughs> the audio version would be the BBC, wouldn't it? That's the problem. That is the problem. I mean, the Times Radio is desperately trying to outdo Radio 4. And at the moment, I just think it's not got it. Sorry, Matt. I find it really dull and boring. And I find the pace is slow. It's a bit like the Times when there's nothing really interesting in the magazine. It's, you know, you flick through the pages and you know, it's very worthy, but You'd rather pick up the sun. <laughs> well, I must say, I quite like listening to John Pinar in the evening. I do think he was uh, underused at Five Live, so it's nice to hear him hosting a drive show. But I wonder if Elizabeth Alex has put her finger on something, and actually Matt mentioned this too, it's very middle class. It's kind of designed to appeal to people that we'd get to guest on the media podcast. <laughs> and, you know, does that mean it's going to have cut through with the general public? I think what was interesting was um, there was a bit of reporting from BuzzFeed uh, earlier in the year that kind of Times Sunday Times are looking to reinvent their brand a little bit more like the New York Times, which has sort of become a bit more uh, youthier and, a, and they've managed to sort of funkify it a little bit and make it slightly more cool. You know, the daily, the podcast, um, sort of it reemerges as sort of millennials-esque uh, operation, um, or at least is a bit more tweaked that way than than the paper would have been 30 years before. And so I could totally see Times and Sunday Times thinking, actually, that's not a bad place to be. Move to a, you know, moving to a more subscription model, suite of products, radio station, podcasts, all those things. Uh, but I don't think what they're doing has that sort of youthier feel, um, uh, especially when you've got people like the more Giles Corrin end of things or um, Amber Rudd and Daughter, uh, I think a little is a little unnecessary and not particularly attractive to that younger audience, but I can see why it would appeal to, you know, Times readers. And Alex, there was a smart speaker mix up with a radio station in Malawi. It it's just a really small new small, tiny little thing, which means that if you ask a smart speaker, you've got the wrong radio station. And it's just something that means the rest of the national press can have a little bit of a laugh. But I I think Times Radio is an interesting idea because actually, you know, you can't charge for radio yet. The whole point of it is it's not going to try to reach 6.77 million as a today program does. It's just trying to get subscribers towards the times. And like, and as Matt was saying, the sort of suite of things that they offer. And so if this works, is it is it unreasonable to expect other other publishers following this model? And, you know, everyone says, you know, radio is dead, all the sort of things. Radio isn't dead, but can it drive loyalty in a way that means that people subscribe to a publisher for it? I don't know is the short answer to that one. 
Well, what other publisher could actually afford to poach a whole load of talent from the BBC to present a newspaper-based radio station? Um, in Britain, I, I think you're up against it. I think if you look at, I, I think the Daily Mail group could. I think... Uh, yeah. in and the, in fact, in, they sort of have, haven't they, in a kind of half-assed way with that thing with Andrew Pearce. I mean, I've never met anyone in real life who actually listens to it, but it does exist, doesn't it? Yes, they have a subscription podcast, or they have a podcast behind their kind of paywall um, member club thing. Um, you know, newspapers uh, have all been very good at putting money into things they think are important for uh, their brand or actually for reaching politicians or or whatever that might be. You know, Global's relationship with LBC, I mean, they've put a lot of time and effort in that is partly a public affairs play as well as an audience driving thing and um, I'm sure they've benefited from from that existing you know the Guardian do a suite of podcasts already um, uh, there was there's always been rumblings about you know do they convert something into a radio station you could totally see that uh, you know Bloomberg the TV channel have radio operations FT economist huge amount of podcast stuff at the economist so they're all they're all in a, in a better place to do it the tough bit with any radio station uh, and establishing any radio station is so you have to stop listening to something to add this one to your list um so that's tough you know that's tough you know giving up the today program or um giving up chris evans or or whatever it might be, uh, it is difficult. And just because it's on doesn't mean people are listening. I think also, if I can the- make a really pedestrian point about that, but one thing that's maybe worth mentioning and never really gets discussed, because everyone's using smart speakers generally in the chattering classes these days, you forget that if you're using DAB and you've got a little spin wheel and you're a Radio 4 or a 5 Live listener, it's a bloody long way down to T. You know, it's the case for Talk Radio and Virgin and now also for Times Radio. All the wireless stations are a long way away from the Bs and L for LBC is in the middle. Well, also, you've got you've got to stop at F for fun kids before you get there as well. So it's very good too. I would suggest, of course, presets do exist, everybody. You can skip well, skip around that way. But I think the point about the smart speaker is interesting. And th- this is a situation where it isn't entirely a Times cock-up in that actually they had a self-installing skill for Alexa, which most people got. Not everyone got it. And that's because... Amazon and Google and with, with Google Home do not care about radio, particularly. They've outsourced a lot of it to tune in. Um, they were on tune in, so it should have worked, but, uh, tune in, um, uh, Google's times slash X conundrum is built into its system. Uh, and it just shows, you know, when you go on, when you go to platforms that the radio industry don't own, these are the, the problems you get. And if, uh, if Amazon or Alexa or Google Home want to change something later on that could not be good for you, they can do that. And I think back to establishing a radio station, a smart speaker is great, but you need to know what you're asking for. Uh, With a dial, obviously, you've got discovery there. So um, the more radio... Uh, sort of goes IP, the less, the, the much more difficult it is to, to establish something new. Uh, incidentally, I was playing with my home pod earlier, and you need to ask to play the media podcast with Ollie Mann. If you ask for the media podcast, you get an old edition of the BBC Media Show. Elizabeth, how do you rate the Today programme? Uh, is that any better than uh, Times Radio? I'm asking because there's a new editor there, Awena Griffiths, and do you think she'll find the, the current editor, Sarah Sands, a tough act to follow or not? I give up with the Sarah Sands Today programme a few months ago. I listen to um, Will Service in the morning now. It doesn't make me so ranty as a Today programme. So, wow. I th- what, what, what triggers you, Elizabeth, in the Today programme? It's quite a gentle listen these days, isn't it? With the Today programme, it was a very... I hate all these, oh, the BBC is so up Brexit supporting. 
But it just felt as if it was just shoving Brexit and leaving the EU down your throat. But the big one that got me was when John Humphrey said you couldn't do breakfast for £100 these days. And that was it. I just went. I was like, He's no gone. Way. He's been gone for six months. I know, yeah. But the rest are all, it's all that nice middle class, very twee idea. And if I want to hear people shouting in the morning, then I'll go on to Piers Morgan and do that. I don't really want it in my headphones. But I think she'll be good. I mean, I do like PM and I do like Broadcasting House. Those are the two programmes she's currently editing, yeah. They're the ones she's uh, with. And I think she'll be very, very good. I think it might be a move and it might uh, make me change. And I don't think, Alex, they're going to be really too bothered about the competition from Times Radio. But one of the things that is different about what Times Radio is doing is they're letting the interviews run long. It is a notable point of difference, isn't it? Especially with no ads. And you do then notice when you flick back to Radio 4, especially the Today programme, that you get, unless it's the Chancellor, you get four minutes with each guest and you don't really learn as much as you could. You learn when you start working there that there is a very set structure to Today programme and you cannot change that. If you if you t- even tinker with it for a few minutes, you get complaints and not sort of the sort of one angry person, you get a lot of complaints. And so when I was working there, actually, when, when I was a senior producer there on the Today Programme, when I was working there, she's bloody great, frankly. And she went off and she did news round. She's doing PM and Broadcasting House now. She's a brilliant journalist. She thinks incredibly intelligently. She understands how to edit incredibly well. And she has Today Programme at her heart. And she's been there been around in and around it for over a decade and it's super exciting for her and super exciting for the Zoe program and where it goes next and matt talking about bbc bosses finally uh there's a newly crowned head of bbc6 music now samantha moy what can you tell us about her uh so samantha moy was at radio one for quite a long time was uh chris moyles's producer i think she was there for about uh, six to nine years uh, then she's been at Six Music, she's been at something else, production company. So it's definitely been around the BBC um, and a little bit in and out of it. Uh, I think people were surprised when uh, the current sort of boss of Six Music upped and left last week, but obviously this was uh, about to be announced. Um, so maybe not a big surprise. Um, I think it means that those BBC networks have a mixture of new and old talent. Uh, so Alid at Radio One, um, has sort of been doing that position, uh, for quite a while. He was number two under Ben Cooper, um, at Radio Two, a similar thing where a kind of deputy-esque has, has taken the, the, the step up. Um, uh, in Asian network, somebody who'd worked in and around, uh, the eighth floor, who'd gone out to run sort of prison radio under a sort of, uh, job swap type basis as, um, uh, has kind of come back in to run the Asian network. So there's a bit of a mix around all, all those networks now. Okay, uh, we've talked about uh, radio for long enough and we've done print, we've done gaming, so let's talk about social media now. And the growing trend among international brands to suspend advertising on Facebook. Uh, Elizabeth, a survey by the World Federation of Advertisers suggests that a third of the world's brands are likely to suspend social media spend this month. It's got a lot to do with the US election, hasn't it? Talk us through it. Yeah, they're going to, you have big brands like Unilever who are going to stop spending on Facebook um, during the US presidential election. So until November, because they say there's just too much hate, too much right wing racism going on and that Facebook isn't doing enough to clamp down on them. Facebook actually had a meeting with some of the stop hate for profit groups and 
Facebook basically just seemed to say, we're not going to change by the sounds of it. The groups were very disappointed and they couldn't see anything changing. So they're still encouraging big brands to boycott advertising on Facebook. They've been joined by some big names. Apparently, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex are also back in the campaign. So there's quite a bit there for them. I suppose it's very headline grabbing, Alex, you know, these huge brands we've all heard of, you know, like Unilever, dropping their Facebook ads, but actually three quarters of Facebook's money is made through small and medium sized companies. And I guess a lot of them actually can't afford to stop targeting people on Facebook now. That's their whole business model. I think that's a very good point. And I think with Facebook, it is so well diversified in that I countless knows how many millions of different businesses use the advertising function. So if one drops out, an infinite number of others will pop up. So the big business isn't as integral to, say, TV advertising, for example. TV advertising can't exist without big businesses. Facebook still can. But what does Facebook do about it? Do do global advertisers, do the big companies suddenly see, oh, wait, our profit margins have gone down, our revenues have gone down and come back? Or after this, do they realize that Facebook isn't the power that it once was? And actually, then they look to diversify. And, and also when it with Facebook, Facebook owns the internet already. Facebook owns WhatsApp, it owns Instagram, it, it owns all of these different things. But for Facebook, what do Facebook do? Do they start limiting free speech? And I, and I think you know, there's stuff that's obviously way over the line, like kill X, destroy Y, commit some illegal act. But And that stuff, Facebook argues, they're already taking down. But when something is racially insensitive or disagreeable you know the old saying of I, I will argue with you and i will disagree vehemently with what you are saying but i will stand up for your right to say it where does facebook stand on that well the problem is the, the nefarious nature it seems to a lot of people of being able to target directly you know i, I want people who like david ike and breitbart to see my advert for ice cream that you know it, it you can actually specifically ask for those people that's the genius of it but it it's problematic isn't it Matt? Uh, it is i mean also different things happen in different countries so there's been i've seen on twitter uh daily top tens of like the most uh interacted with content and it's all kind of daily caller fox news sort of super right wing uh, and then uh gem stone's been publishing the uk equivalent which uh from a couple of days ago was number one lad bible nhs abitha holiday woof woof some more lad <laughs> bible the guardian and bbc news uh and maybe the in america they're much better at using the platforms uh, for their their evil aims and we haven't really cottoned onto it uh, yet in the uk i think a lot of the the advertisers coming off facebook i imagine a lot of cfos breathing a sigh of relief at the moment going wow we can cut our ad budgets and seem like we're good guys that's useful isn't it uh, so w- will it stick around I don't know. It's difficult. I mean, I think it has forced Facebook to to make some decisions that they didn't look like they were going to be making six months ago. So there has been some movement on Facebook's internal policies, uh, and they've you know, introduced what Twitter did about labeling content, uh, which they had they had not done and, and had argued strongly against doing. Uh, so there's something which is making them even more uncomfortable than they normally were. I wonder if whether or not it's a long-term thing, Elizabeth, might simply depend on who wins that presidential election. I mean, if it's Biden, then, you know, clearly all of these people who have been asking for a boycott will feel to an extent, mission accomplished, let's go back to what we were doing before. If it's Trump, they're going to double down on this, aren't they? I don't think so. I I agree with Matt. I think it's... um... It's a very short-term way to look good and cut down your advertising budget while COVID's around. 
I think Facebook is too big and too powerful now. It Everybody has it around the world and people are going to want to advertise on it. And if they don't advertise on it, Facebook aren't really going to be bothered because there are going to be plenty more people who will still use it. There are people there who, you know, once you get to a certain demographic, Facebook is their social media. And Facebook can argue that they're not publishing hate when you have the little surreptitious Britain First, for example, are very good at putting out tweets about veterans sleeping on the streets, which get shared by my family, for example. These aren't the sort of things that are being targeted by the advertisers as hate, but they are very much in a hateful way. So it's a very hard line for them to cross. And I think come December, it'll be business as usual. I think the other thing that's interesting for the uh, for Facebook is actually right, a right-wing government in America is much better for them than a left-wing government because there's been a lot of discussion uh, about you know the, the Democrats and what they would like to implement onto those social networks and uh, particularly obviously the, the big prize being to try and uh, split up Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook, hence why they are busy trying to integrate them so tightly that they, they can never be unwound. Okay, let me know what you think. Facebook.com slash Ollieman. <laughs> Alex, Matt and Elizabeth are still with me and there has been a lot of business in the podcast world this summer. Uh, The latest is news of a Spotify deal with Omnicom, Matt. What is behind this $20 million deal? Uh, It's hard to know exactly because $20 million seems quite a lot of money, but then actually it's not that much money to to spend on on something. Uh, I think the big shift is Spotify uh, are building their own ad engine network for podcasting. And obviously, Spotify have a very successful ad engine that inserts ads into your your music streams if you're a free Spotify user. Uh, and so it's a version of that in other places. Uh, and I think if we look at... Uh, at Spotify's uh, recent uh, netting of big podcast stars and to make them exclusive to the platform. Uh, what's interesting is whilst their US advertising might not change and might stay in-house for those podcasters, suddenly options arise around the world to do things. So uh, creating relationships with large media owners uh, or large media uh, agencies is a uh, probably a good thing if you're trying to build out a new advertising product. I think as well as money that's in there and sort of cash for ads, uh, they've also talked about you know research initiatives. Uh, Spotify clearly want to position themselves as, as the main brand to go to for large scale ad buys on podcasts you know the the network the networks around the world you look at the ACAS and the audio booms uh, some networks at DAX some networks in America too uh, represent lots of a whole selection of podcasts uh, but by having access to to big stars that can be cross-promoted across all of the Spotify platform not just you know in app or or, or in podcast ads uh, definitely gives them something above all of these people yeah 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 but what does it mean for me uh, i mean i've got independently distributed podcasts some of them are on acar some of them are on dax we're already getting injections of advertising like you may have just heard if you're listening to this episode in the uk right now so what happens if that's distributed on spotify can we get a cut of that so if you think of, of the, the spotify catalog being a combination of third-party shows like this one uh, and then shows that are exclusive to them uh, or owned by them or the companies that they've bought uh, you can 
in the same way that you might use ACAST for your ad insertion across your your platforms and your listeners, um, people will be able to go to Spotify to to reach their shows. Now the the challenge for all platforms uh, is can they balance the third party content and their own content? So uh, you know you may not appear in playlists or um, promo as much if suddenly there's a ad network associated with some other shows where they make more money out of. And that's always you know that's the challenge of all platforms. You want to create a product that's interesting for your users, which you know isn't just your own shows, but, but you know that you're start ma- injecting ads into third party shows. No, I don't think so, and. Um, I think they will start offering opportunities for podcasts to move to to Spotify uh, or to, at the moment, they've got Anchor, which is their sort of self-publishing platform, uh, which has ads in it. Um, and I can see, you know, that being a route if people want to be hosted and monetized by Spotify directly. So the question for a podcaster is, do they think uh, Spotify will do a better job of making the money than uh, some of the other people in the market? Elizabeth, has your podcast listening skipped over to Spotify at any point? Has any of this spend worked on you? I mean, they've bought Gimlet, Anchor, Parcast, The Ringer, or are you still, you know, listening to Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or whatever you I still listen to Apple, I'm afraid. I'm an old-fashioned girl. Would you like to see Apple doing the same thing, having original content, walled-off content, or do you think their approach of basically, oh, anyone can make a podcast is still the right one 13 years later? I'm still of the anyone can make a podcast. I find... I hate the trend for every celebrity now to have a podcast. If you look at the top 10, it's celebrity filled. And so it's just the same old, same old. I much prefer the old fashioned method where anybody could get into the garden shed, make a podcast and it would reach out and touch somebody to be very hippy dippy about it. I like the idea of it being a bit more pirate radio. Now it's a bit swish, bit sleek. And it doesn't fill you up as much as the old ones does. I find they don't make you think as much. They're just same old, same old. And one of those very old names in podcasting, Alex, uh, Stitcher, who own Earwolf, for example, who have been making comedy podcasts for over a decade, uh, they are now about to be acquired by Sirius XM, the satellite radio giant. What do you make of that? I think it makes perfect sense for Sirius. So it's a $300 million deal, according to the Wall Street Journal. And that would be a huge podcast acquisition. But for Sirius, they don't have a a pronounced sort of podcast presence. And if you're looking for a sort of starter kit, then you need to go into someone who's already got the audience, has already got all of the infrastructure set up. Um, and so if they're going to, and podcasts, as we've talked about on this podcast many times before, is becoming, is having its absolute growth spurt. And it, the more money that's spent it, the more money that Spotify is spending and Sirius is spending and Apple and Amazon and everyone else, the more likely it is to stick. So if Sirius wasn't doing this now, they it's it's less of a risk to spend $300 million than it is not to spend any money on this thing. So, you know, they, they've got a lot of big shows in that thing. They're, they're, they're just porting over some established shows. It seems like a very sensible thing to do for not, a, it is a ridiculous amount of money, but not a ridiculous amount of money. There are risks, though, aren't there, Elizabeth, when big brands get involved in podcast sensibilities? Uh, I'm thinking of the story this week around No Country for Young Women, the BBC podcast. Tell us what happened there. No Country for Young Women. Um, they put up a tweet on BBC Sounds where the host, who is Sadia Azmat, the host, and Dr. Charlotte Riley and Amelia de Moldenberg, 
told viewers or listeners how not to be a Karen. Now, a Karen is a white middle-aged woman who's renowned for having racist views. But basically, a Karen now is just anybody who's white and middle-aged. And the advice they were given was such great things as go out and read a book or basically just get out the way. At one point they said, basically leave. Now, that might sound great advice, but I have to say when I was their age, I wasn't reading books about racism because I was going out and marching against apartheid. So the whole thing just stank of complete ageism with young people who consider the older generation not to have any idea about what's going on in the world. Alex, you used to work in social content for the BBC. And this clip that went viral and attracted criticism along the lines that Elizabeth just outlined personally wasn't even from the podcast it was advertising, was it? I mean, that's an interesting decision. What do you think was going on behind the scenes? It's one of those things whereby it goes back to Facebook, right? If people should have the right to have these conversations, whether or not BBC is a platform for it is a whole separate thing. But it, it's a, it is a debate that's happening, so the BBC has to reflect it. And if you want to create a splash on social media, we talk about, you know, the sort of algorithm favours polarising views, right? That's a, that's a polarising view. But it's the idea of a Karen is newsworthy. The average BBC audience member is only just discovering what a Karen or the modern definition of a Karen has become. So it's, it's, it's a newsworthy and relevant topic, just whether or not they approached it in the right way is... <laughs> is up for debate. I think I think it's an interesting conversation. Well, it's not the conversation they had in the show though. I mean that's the we we were discussing this last episode Matt with regard to question time uh which has also been slated for taking clips out of context but at least those clips were part of the debate. Uh, I mean should the BBC be making marketing material that's designed to provoke and polarise people? It'd be interesting to talk to 15 to 34-year-olds um, who the podcast targeted at um, and ask them what their view of the clip was. And it might be different to uh, how different demographics feel. Uh, when I watched it, I thought it reflected, if you're looking on a website like Imager or or something like that, it was in line with some of those those views and thoughts. Um and you know the BBC are 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 working incredibly hard and focused on trying to reach younger audiences. Uh, and could I understand why that got put out to 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 reach those uh, to do that job? Yeah, I can. Was it the right thing to do? It's that's up for discussion, isn't it? I mean, the the problem, Elizabeth, isn't it that the narratives around you know race and feminism and uh, millennials and the intersectionality of all of that cancel culture, you know, all of these things are huge subjects that get boiled down into these little nuggets that get shared with polarised opinions on social media. And sort of no clip can do justice to that conversation, but maybe the podcast, the actual show, can. But that clip has made people like me, who would learn a lot from that, because young feminists have a lot to teach us older people, that clip would just not make me do it. And that's not the remit of the BBC. The BBC prides itself on unifying and reflecting the entirety of the United Kingdom. Now, that didn't. That specified very specific demographic. And it was also highly misogynistic in that there is no Kevin. And they weren't discussing the differences between ages. It was very much attacked on women. 
which again is not the BBC's. Although, I mean, you could argue that that's in the nature of the slang word they were discussing. They didn't create the term Karen, did they? They imported it over from America. So, I mean, you're right, there isn't a male equivalent, but that's not the fault of the women presenting the podcast about it. According to Fatherly, there, there, there is a male, the, the male equivalent is Ken. Does it, well, well, does it need addressing by the BBC? I suppose that's the nugget of this, isn't it, for a lot of people? Some people say that, that kind of conversation is best left to independent podcasts. No, it should be, actually... should absolutely be by the BBC. The BBC has to, if it's, albeit this isn't the best forum because all the guests on this program are, are still sort of the, 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 the oldest millennials or the youngest Gen Xers. They're, they're, st- they're still not this young people, hire young people, BBC, let give young people agency. Um, but yes, the BBC should provide a window into society as a whole, not just the middle class bits or the or the middle aged bits. I think part of the problem for the, the BBC is by being the um, right, there's a little view from you and you, you think one thing and let's they've got a view from someone who who feels the opposite, even though they're not entirely balanced, but we we won't talk about that the percentages, uh, but that makes us seem okay. But the, the problem which comes which has come out the back of that is the the drop in trust is partly driven by a lack of authenticity and the fact that people's People don't feel like they're reflecting real views. They're, they're just being in the middle of everything. Um, I think having a selection of views, including this one, uh, is probably more positive than the negative. I think the the, the danger is um, that the BBC's always had, which is I pay my license fee. I can't believe dot, 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 dot. Uh, Q right wing uh, Tory MP uh, quote tweeting and, and spouting off something. Um, and then the BBC is stuck again. They haven't created, the problem is they haven't created an environment where they say we are the place where there are these discussions and um, and we marshal these different things that, that, that you can see. That's the that's the core issue. That would be fine if this had been a discussion. It wasn't a discussion. They weren't discussing the issue of Karens. They were basically putting a lecture out which says this is what you should do according to us. It, if it had been a discussion, that would have been fine. There's a lot to discuss in this, but it wasn't a discussion. But also it's guests, wasn't it? You know, it's guests' opinion. That's the other part of it. Now, someone in Social HQ decided this would be a good way to talk about the show and therefore they put a clip out of it. But, you know, some guests did some content uh, and um, uh, why can't that be an opinion? I think the fact that the tweet was deleted pretty quickly shows that they made entirely the wrong decision and they realised they made entirely the wrong decision. Well, a campaign that's just been launched, Alex, to make us all feel warm and fuzzy towards our public service broadcasters uh, is this promotion they've done called Our Stories Are Your Stories. I don't, have you have you seen it, this video that went out? Yes. Did it make you feel warm and fuzzy? Well, I said it was intended to make us feel warm and fuzzy. So this was something that was on uh, simulcast on BBC, ITV, Channel 4 and Channel 5. Uh, extolling the virtues of the importance of public service broadcasters for some reason to people who are actually already watching the bloody thing. <laughs> I mean, you could only watch it if you were watching those channels at that time, uh, in which case you're already the audience who's involved. But what did you make of it? I, I watched it. Um, there were some things from all manner of different programs, from The Voice and all other stuff. It is so forgettable. Like that, it. It's. I, I, my guess is why it was made is because there's a BBC news piece around... Uh, different presenters walking through the street and staying at home, all this sort of stuff. And, and they talk about how important it is that the news matters. And that got all manner of brilliant social media reaction. Rightly so. It's a really, really cleverly done piece. Th- this is sort of a, a late night version of people wandering around and, and there's dark grass and there's TVs in ridiculous places and there's different programs, clips in it. And then like, okay, that good. What, what you're saying that TV is good. 
Okay, good, good. Okay, that's nice. What else are you telling me? You should watch it. There's no overarching narrative. There's no reason why TV has suddenly changed because of COVID-19 the way that it has with the news. Well, that's not the point, is it? The point was public service broadcasters are different to other telly. Look at the great work we do and how we make uh, Britain feel uh, united. Are they? They are. They are different. But the the BBC is trying to rip off Netflix left, right, and centre. So, and that it it has a skill formally in bringing the country together. But that's how public service broadcasting was thirty years ago. And did you make of it, Elizabeth? Um, it was very instantly forgettable, and at the same time that the Curtin Regional Programme, and I just thought, eh. Yeah, it had the Angel of the North in it, didn't it, as a landmark where people were watching the programmes that they're cutting. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's nothing else in the North but the Angel. It's a very cliched image of the North, and yeah, a bit twee. Matt, did you understand what it was for and why they did it? Yeah, so it's basically the start of the public broadcasters saying, don't either A, sell us off, uh, force us to cut our license fees, uh, don't be enamoured by Netflix, who actually uh, create programming that works internationally, even though a decent chunk of it's created in the UK, but doesn't really reflect uh, British life uh, and that the public broadcasters uh, are the way to to continue that and that actually covid has done a pretty good job of of bringing the country together netflix doesn't create bbc bite-sized local tv um news etc etc i thought it was probably all a bit subtle but i assume this is the first of of uh a volley of things that those companies are going to work together to communicate to government and the public i thought it was actually a bit unfortunate from channel 4's point of view elizabeth i don't know if you agree but I understand why the BBC would make a promo like that, and ITV, I guess, as well, to remind everyone that they have public service credentials. And Channel 5, I'm sure, were just happy to be involved. (laughs) Channel 4, I mean, you know, Channel 4 have their own case to make to government, don't they, about how they're publicly funded but also take advertising. And actually, it could be that the net effect of that for Channel 4 viewers was they were kind of saying, we're a bit like the BBC and ITV. I mean, that's... Contrary to everything they've been saying for the last 10 years of their own promotional work. It's contrary to everything that Channel 4 has been saying since it began. I mean, it was the the channel that was going to break boundaries and do new things. And yeah, by aligning itself with the rest, it's like we're part of the establishment now very much. I don't know. I think there are bigger there are bigger enemies on the horizon, uh, those in Whitehall and, and those in Silicon Valley for all of those those companies to try and work together to to bat off. Another weird fact about this promo is it was also simulcast on Paramount TV uh, because it's owned by Viacom, which I don't think people think of a public service broadcaster. I like anyway. Cheers. What about my Cheers reruns? <laughs> it brings Britain together. Uh, right, there is just time to squeeze in our legendary media quiz. Oh, God. This week, we pull focus on what could be Britain's next big film studios. Barking and Dagenham Council have approved plans for a £100 million film studio in the Thames estuary. If the Mayor of London gives the green light, Hollywood's next blockbuster could arrive by way of the East London borough that's big on concrete, but not so big on glamour until now. Dagenham has already been host to some starry production shoots in the past few years, so let's see how much our guests know about the neighbourhood's media history. I'm going to ask you four questions about Dagenham's filmic story. All you have to do is give me the correct answer before anyone else. Here's question number one. Name one of the superhero feature films from Sony Pictures Productions made in Dagenham last year. Buzz in with your name when you know the answer. Matt. Matt. Uh, 
Black Widow. Black Widow is correct. Yes, you could have had Black Widow or Morbius. Both Marvel films from Sony Pictures. Uh, Black Widow had its release date pushed back to October from May. Morbius not expected in cinemas until next year. Here's question number two. What's the name of the massive Netflix sci-fi series made in Dagenham from Charlie Brooker? Alex. Alex. Black Mirror. Correct. Dagenham's former Sanofi building was transformed into a clinic and police station in 2014 for the first series to air on the streaming platform. Here's question number three. This is tense, isn't it? It's exciting. It's all to play for now. What is the name of the company who originally backed the Dagenham Studio project? No one? It is uh, Pacifica Ventures that I was looking for there. Uh, who apparently pulled out over Brexit concerns. The council haven't let that stop them, though, and are in talk with potential joint venture partners. Uh, And here is question number four. So, um, I mean, Lizzie, if you could do us a favour and not make this a tie-break, that would be appreciated. (laughs) What will have to move in order to accommodate the new film studio site if construction goes ahead? Alex. Alex. It's It's some sort of market of some sort. Good enough for me. The City of London's wholesale markets, including Smithfield, Billingsgate and New Smithfield's market, which were going to open on a new site at Dagenham Dock. Now the markets will be relocated to a site nearby. That sounds ominous, doesn't it? Uh, Well done, Alex. Congratulations. You've won the quiz. (laughs) That is it for today. My thanks to our guests, Elizabeth Carellis, Matt Deegan and Alex Hudson. And that is it for us for this summer. We are taking our traditional July and August break right now. And uh, we're not going to Edinburgh for the TV festival this year because nobody is. Um, So let me take the opportunity to thank each and every one of you who've supported the show this year with a donation. You have enabled us to keep going. Thank you. If you like what we're up to here on The Media Podcast and you want to help us keep making it, then do visit themediapodcast.com slash donate and select an amount to keep us going all year round. Uh, If you make a donation, even a small one, you could have a future episode in the autumn dedicated to you. I know. Uh, Whilst we're off air, do catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production, and we will be back in the autumn. See you then.